I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to Dementia Matters. Today on the podcast, we're starting a new series on the voices of research participants. Over four episodes, we'll meet four research participants from across the country who will share what inspired them to get involved in Alzheimer's disease research and what their experience has been like. We hope to demystify what it's like to participate in research studies and help researchers make studies more accessible based on these perspectives. Today, I'm joined by Cynthia Sierra. Cindy is from San Antonio, Texas, and received her master's in counseling and guidance. With more than 15 years of experience administering psychosocial and neurological clinical assessments and providing in-home, evidence-based clinical services, Cindy has a special interest in working with individuals that may slip through the cracks of our mental health system, focusing on supporting individuals with psychotic disorders and interventions to decrease cognitive impairment and improve community function. In addition to her work in healthcare, Cindy is a care partner and research study partner for her mother, who has early onset Alzheimer's disease. Though she has always been passionate about caring for those with mental health and cognitive issues, this personal experience shifted her perspective on caregiving in unexpected ways. These changes led her to share her caregiving journey in a moving presentation at the 2022 Alzheimer's Association International Conference. I'm also joined by Ms. Sarah Walter. Ms. Walter is the Program Administrator for the Alzheimer's Clinical Trials Consortium and the Alzheimer's Therapeutic Research Institute, also known as ATRI, at the University of Southern California. She joins me to co-host this special series. Cindy, welcome to Dementia Matters. Hi, Nate. Thank you for having me. To begin with, what has been your experience with dementia? Well, my experience really started at a young age. I was a senior in high school when my grandmother was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And I experienced seeing my mother and her siblings be caregivers to her throughout her illness well into my years and my early years into college. I jumped on board and because I was going to college there locally at the time, I was able to help during the day when my mom and her siblings were at work. So I would stop in and check on grandma and just do activities with her to help with that. And as I, once I moved away and continued my undergrad in psychology, my interest in caregiver burnout just grew immensely just by being around it and surrounded by it. Observing my mom going through it, seeing the challenges that they were having in finding experts and specialist in this illness. This is back in 1999. (laughs) So quite a few years ago in our small, well, I guess El Paso, Texas isn't a very small town, but to me, it's a small town. There really wasn't any experts for us to be able to seek treatment for my grandmother at that time. I remember my aunt, my mom's youngest sibling, taking on the load of trying to find specialists outside of Texas to get her care. And so there were several trips to the Mayo Clinic to try to get a proper diagnosis, trying to just find what it is exactly that she was going through and experiencing before a formal diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. Well, Cynthia, thank you for sharing that. And it to me, what I think is so incredible is that you were impacted 
by a, a loved one having thinking changes at a very early age in your life, someone who was very important to you that you were close to. And with that experience, not only did you go into a profession that is helping people like that, but you are in a field specifically and, a, and a, an area within this field that helps not only the person, but then the people like your family that are directly involved in the care. All my undergrad research was on caregiver burnout. And my research professor back then really tried hard to get me to find another research project to get data and articles on because it, it was so bare bones. There really was not anything out there. But I was so passionate about it just from my personal experience. I knew that the illness from the individual spread throughout the family through burnout. Wow. Well, for our listeners who may be in similar situations or even before, who may just be worried about their parents or family members, you know, a common question that comes up is, what do you do once you have that concern? And so I'm wondering, can you share with us what you did when you initially or someone in your family initially had the concern about your mother? My initial concern came around, I believe it was 2016 with my mom on a holiday visit back home to El Paso. We had lunch. And for that hour and a half of her lunch break, we had the same conversation. She kept asking how our Thanksgiving was and what did we do and who was there? And it was just on repeat. And so I came back home and I mentioned it to my siblings immediately. And, you know, in our culture, Hispanic culture, we're not very prone to go to the doctors and get diagnoses, right? My dad tells me all the time, why am I going to go to the doctor? They're just going to find something that's wrong with me. <laughs> and so when I mentioned it to my siblings, they were like, no, mom must have just been stressed. You know, we haven't noticed anything. And I think that just has to do with the fact that we don't want to have this happen to us. We don't want to experience it. I think within my family, there was far more hesitation because we had already lived it with my grandma. And so my mom was at the time in 2016, I believe in her late 50s, early 60s. Can't do the math right off the top of my head at the moment. So that also is scary, right? Um, you're not expecting someone to come and tell you that they are experiencing any kind of cognitive decline at such a young age from what you're expecting your parents to be. Well, Cynthia, so here you are talking to me about the power of denial, right? And that, and then we know that that is pervasive. But you have the strength to see this prominent symptom and then immediately push through this denial and call your family, your siblings, and say, there's a problem. And, and I just think that's incredible because I think many people would still succumb to the fear of, I don't want this to be true and therefore I'm not going to really look at it, which is why we know it takes a long time before people come into a memory clinic or their primary to be evaluated. And so from that point of sharing that information, did it take a long time before other people came around or... Did they let it go or did you sort of wait until they experienced it? What happened after you shared your concerns? I pretty much let it go. I don't believe it was until a year later her siblings noticed it and her youngest sister, who was the one that would take my grandmother to the Mayo Clinic, really encouraged her to get an evaluation um, in El Paso done. And at the time, I wasn't aware, but she was prescribed medication to start the delay of the onset of the illness. Mom still wasn't sure if she thought she had this illness. She had her own internal denial to go through. And so she was not taking medication. 
And it wasn't brought to my attention until she moved here to San Antonio with me in 2018. And she brought this medication with her and I looked it up <laughs> and saw what its intended purpose was. And so I immediately hurried to get her set up with a primary care doctor here because I knew time was of the essence. And so you witnessed dementia caregiving burnout in your family. And that, of course, was one of your professional interests. What did it look like to you? And knowing what you know now as a professional, what do you think can be done to address it or to prevent it? So the burnout to me, when I was observing it with my family, really looked like anger, frustration, chaos. There was a lot of internal bickering within the family. And I think that was all really based on the fact that, one, each of the siblings was battling with their own acceptance of what their mother was going through. But two, it was also the fact that their lives changed overnight. And they went from having a very independent mother to someone who needed all around care. My grandmother was an eloper. And so that was a very common thing that occurred. I'd be in the middle of class and I'd receive, this is how old I am, a pager beep. <laughs> Um, with 911 on it, <laughs> knowing that that meant grandma had eloped, right? All hands on deck. And so it would lead to people leaving work, rushing out of, you know, their businesses, um, whatever they were doing at that moment to get to my grandmother's house and start a search. And so what I saw as burnout was intense family chaos, but at the same time was strength in having others for, with you to be able to carry that burden. And so knowing that, knowing those feelings and really clearly analyzing those feelings, Cynthia, what do you think then for other people listening that might be experiencing burnout or who are yet to experience burnout, what can we do to help these caregivers, these family members? I really compare it to the saying when we're raising children and people say it takes a village. It really does take a village to care for your loved one. The other thing that's very important is to realize that your village doesn't have to be just family. Your village can be any kind of support that you might have. It might be your next door neighbor. It could be your spiritual family, right? If you're involved in a local church. I know I have found a lot of support through the caregiver groups and, and being able to be a part of those support groups. They were immensely important to me in the very beginning of this journey for me. It gives you the opportunity to know that you're not alone and there's others going through the same thing that you're going through, just the sense of validation, right, from those support groups. And so build your village, find those people, find those niches that will be able to be there for you at a moment's notice. That is so well said. And I appreciate that you're right. It's not just your own blood family. It's your friend family, your your church family, your healthcare family. The, the communities can be very big. Uh, for our listeners, you can't see Cynthia, but she is far from old. And just a notice that all healthcare providers, right, have, have pagers still to this day. So um, we still get pages, sadly. But now, and we've talked before this podcast, and you've had some very interesting experiences watching your mother in the actual clinic. In particular, you notice that she acts differently based on who the provider was, and more specifically, what language the provider conversed with your mother. 
So can you share with our listeners why it is so important to have bilingual professionals, particularly in the areas of mental health and aging? For my mom, I really saw that it really had to do with the personal connection. She has spoken English since she was five years old. So she's very well versed in the language and doesn't have difficulty understanding it or translating. But it was just this change in her demeanor, her body language, when someone would check in with her in her in in her Spanish language. It's the familiarity of it, I believe. And I think it also has to do with the fact that, you know, I'm a first generation Mexican-American. And so I really think her experience immigrating here to the States is completely different from me being born and raised here. And so there's this sense of comfort that this is one of your own people, right? (laughs) And I think that's just very comforting to her. She will smile and chit chat and just have a longer conversation with those professionals than she will with others. And I think that just has to do with the fact that she feels, again, like this could be family. Well, and Cynthia, you were involved in more than your mother's clinical care. And that's, of course, you're on this podcast. And I was able to meet you through the fact that you gave this heartwarming presentation at, at AAIC this past year. And, and, and I, thanks to Ms. Sarah Walter, who's here in this podcast, because she connected us together. And I'm going to turn it over to Sarah to ask a few more questions now, transitioning to your, your research aspect of your involvement with your mom. Thanks, Nate. And Cynthia, I just really appreciate you sharing those stories about caregiver burnout and the importance of family and building that support network. I know it's hard to ask for help. And I think that's something that I've heard from a lot of our research participants, that that was a really important skill early on in their caregiving experience was to learn that they can't do it all and they're not going to be able to do it all forever. And to start building that support network really early on in the process was important to them preventing that burnout. So I'm, I'm you know, working research and I'd love to hear more about your research experience and what, what it was like to get into research. What was it that made you want to take her into research? I have been looking at research. <laughs> um, I feel like my whole life at this point, I believe the passion really started with my grandmother, seeing that there really wasn't much out there back then and being aware just from my own professional experience in research that things definitely have evolved and there are research projects out there available. I, I immediately started looking into seeing if there was anything that she could participate in once we had her neurological testing and had a diagnosis of Um, cognitive decline. Unfortunately, at the time, mom was struggling still with her own acceptance of the illness. And so medication wasn't something that she was very on board with taking. But in 2020, when she went in for a follow-up with her neurocog testing, her neuropsychologist informed her that she had had a significant decline from her previous test. And that immediately worried her and, and scared her. And so at that moment, she immediately said, okay, give me all the medicine, whatever there is, I will take it. And I will take it daily. And I will do what you say. And so it was really at that moment when her neuropsychologist and I looked at each other and we said, Okay, this is the moment, right? If we can get her on the medication, 
and now we can discuss if she'd be interested in some research. And so when I first approached her, she was very hesitant about it, <laughs> had no interest in it. But we had a very lengthy conversation of what this research could mean to other people. And while there may not be a cure for her, and it might not change her life at this moment, there could be a cure for her grandchildren or great-grandchildren or another family several years down the road that isn't even related to us. And that to her held far more value. That's beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, I think one of the things I was really struck by with our conversation back in the summer was just the the really unique barriers that you encountered in, in getting her into a research project. Can you just talk a little bit about what it was like to find a research study and then how did your family feel about it? Were there were there issues there? What what kind of barriers did you encounter? Finding a research study wasn't a very large barrier, luckily enough. Her providers here locally are part of the Biggs Institute here in San Antonio. And so it was fairly easy to be able to identify the research project she could participate in. Where we hit barriers was we found the research project and she was consented and in the project but she had never been able to establish care with a neurologist prior to the research project. And so I believe we were in about three months when she finally saw the neurologist and they recommended a medication change. So that meant that we had to halt the research study, um, have a discussion with the PIs and the research staff and see if she would still be considered eligible for the study because now you're talking about a med change during the stage where we had just surpassed pre-screening and we're about to start the screening prior to the medication trial. And so that was very worrisome because after everything we had been through to try to get her on medication, trying to get her to agree to be on a research study, time and effort it took to do all the pre-screening visits and those. And now we're here at a point where, you know, do we agree to this med change and possibly risk her participation in a research study, and, and what is it that we can do? And so I was very fortunate to be able to have her neurologist and the research team all sit in conference with me and discuss different options and, and make the best decision that was best suited for my mom's care overall. And so that to me is a big thing that I think researchers have to take into account. Um, I don't believe that there's far enough awareness of the limitations to be able to get into seeing specialists in a timely fashion. I mean, our referral took a year. <laughs> and so you have to keep in mind that within that year was that time of getting mom on medication, preparing her for wanting to participate in a research study, starting the pre-screening visits, and then finally our time came to see neurology. And so that's something that's really important. So for researchers, I think the due diligence in, you know, when you're offering a study to someone is really be aware if there's any of those medical appointments that could derail a participant from participating in your study. Make sure you get those done ahead of time or let the research participant know, you know, let's wait till you're able to see the specialist. And then once you see them, if we're still enrolling, you know, we, we can try then. Or if you're within the same institution or the same organization, you know, I, I'm well aware you can pull strings <laughs> and try to get something done ahead of time. And so 
when it comes to recruitment, I think that's a huge thing that I would have been very sad if they had lost a participant because of just the delay in accessing healthcare. So I want to give a caveat because not all clinical studies are medication studies. And so it's not it's not always the case where a medication change is going to impact your enrollment in research. There are many observational studies, which I'm a part of, where we welcome that information, but it doesn't prohibit you. But one of the things that I took away from your experience, Cynthia, is the impact that healthcare visits have on research and vice versa. What we do in research does trickle into clinical care, just the words we use and the things that the tests that we run. And so it could all be very confusing. And so one, I'm wondering if it was a confusing process going back and forth between healthcare and research. But then two, I'm also seeing how important it is that researchers work with the family in explaining things, because the impression I get from you is that the researchers didn't work with you in explaining this. It's unlikely that your mom would have been enrolled in the study. I think the other part is just the opportunity that I was given with being able to have the healthcare provider and the principal investigator from the research meet with me. I mean, we did a conference call. That to me is like unheard of, right? (laughs) And I was given the opportunity to ask all the questions I had and have both of them on the line. So I had tons of questions for the healthcare provider on what does this medication change mean? What does this mean if we don't do it? What does this mean if we do do it? And be able to have the principal investigator of saying, okay, so what does it mean if we do the medication change? You know, does that completely rule her out? Are there any options? You know, I'm well versed in how IRBs are written and, and consent. And so I know there's not a lot of wiggle room and things. And just having that opportunity. I mean, I'm well aware that that's not something that happens very often. And I'm also well aware if that conversation would not have occurred, my decision would have been in what's in her best interest for her health care and ended the research participation. Yeah. And I think one of the biggest challenges we have in clinical trials is recruiting cohorts that represent our population and those communities that have less access to quality health care, to diagnoses, to those neurologists, neurologists you know, they're the ones that we want to be in clinical trials. And so it, it really goes hand in hand, better access to clinical care, better access to quality diagnoses will build more access to research studies, right? It's a, it's a big problem. What, um, what was it like being in a research study and, um, you know, for you and, and for your mom? And I think just, just thinking about what that personal experience was like, what recommendations would you have for researchers or scientists uh, to make it more accessible and make that experience more meaningful? For mom and I, I think we've had a really great experience. The team that we are working with is very accommodating. They're extremely helpful. They're easy to get in contact with when when we have questions or, or there's any kind of concern. I would say overall, it has been a positive experience. Have there been hiccups? Yes. <laughs> um, but there's hiccups in, in our everyday life. And and we we really roll with it. There hasn't been anything that has been too overwhelming or too cumbersome that has gotten in the way. I think the biggest piece for us is definitely the understanding and the accommodation for scheduling is huge. One, it's definitely 
trying to match my my work schedule with my mom's just well-functioning schedule, I will say, is very important. And so being able to be mindful of that, yes, we're research participants and we want to participate, but we also cannot completely pause our lives to be able to make appointments or the length of appointments. So my mom's research team has been amazing. They set me up in an office while she's completing her exams and I can take my work laptop in and do work while you know, she's doing her exams and they'll pull me out for interviews when I'm needed and then I can be put back in that office and continue working. So it's a really great system because I am technically not, you know, in the office, but my work is great too. They know mom has a research appointment, but they know that I can work there remotely and I just, you know, take sick time for the few hours that I'm away for an interview and be able to flex my time that way. And so it's, it's that combination, right, of being able to have the research team accommodate me in that way that makes this, you know, successful. The other thing is they'll do very early morning appointments for me so I can get in there, get an appointment done and get to the office, you know, maybe an hour late, if anything. And and that's great. My siblings were completely supportive. That's one thing that I'm very blessed with is they definitely are like, whatever you say that mom needs. We completely support you. They definitely value my knowledge and my, my expertise and my profession. And so they, they trust the decisions I make. So for them, it's, it's, really, um, it's really wonderful to be able to have that. Her siblings, on the other hand, have more of a difficulty with it. And I think that part of it is, you know, letting go. They're older. <laughs> and, you know, in, in our culture definitely you know it doesn't matter how old you are but your elders definitely always have the right and and you should follow those decisions that they suggest so there's more difficulty there i know a lot of the feedback i have received from her siblings is their concern on the number of medication mom's on um what the medication is doing to her body side effects that might be occurring from certain medications and they're very open in sharing that they know that the end of this illness, it's not a very positive ending, right? And so to them, it's more of a sense of why put her through something like this if there's not going to be a positive result at the end. And so that goes back to the conversation mom and I had. It's not necessarily about what we will get out of the research study, but what will her legacy be? that is left behind. That's beautiful. Yeah. What what I've heard from some of our research participants is that researchers tend to interact with just one care partner for the person that's in the research study. But for many people, there is a whole family involved. And so one thing that researchers can do better is to make themselves available to talk about the importance of research with the whole network of care that, and supporters that are providing that support to you. So I'm imagining this, maybe you can just confirm this for me. What I'm imagining is that you're the one that's having all these conversations with family. You're the one that's defending your research decision, talking to your siblings. And is there something that researchers can do to better support you? Because that sounds like a lot of work. And this is where I, I have difficulty with giving just really generalized good advice, right? Because I think my advantage is the fact that I'm a professional in mental health along with a researcher as my background. And so 
I recruited for a lot of our research studies. So, so I know how to ease families' concerns about, about these things. And, and that really comes in handy with my family. I am the main person that the researchers communicate with, right? They have one caregiver that they, they do all this with. The one thing that I believe that was really helpful for me and that our research team did is that they have already their own website set up where the research projects are available for you to go on there and read about and look at. And so I shared that research project, the link to the website with um, my mom's family. They're able to see the doctors that are involved, the principal investigators' credentials that are, are doing this. I also sent them her participant consent. I was like, here's the whole consent. Read the whole thing. This is what they explain. These are exactly the visits that she's taking. This is how long it takes. Another thing that eased their concern is the study that my mom is on, she's on a medication that's already FDA approved. It's just used for another type of condition. And so what they're piloting is, can it be helpful with dementia? That's it. So we're not in a study where she's quote unquote, a guinea pig trying to figure out what side effects are going to happen. That's already been done with the medication that she's trialing. And so I know that eased a lot of their concerns as well. But also just letting them know, what do we have to lose? We all know the ending, like you say, you know, it's not going to be a pleasant one. But what do we have to lose in helping? And and just seeing if this could be helpful for another family. So what would you like to see researchers focus on in the future? I was really excited. I participated in AAIC 2021 when it was just virtual. Um, And that was part of me participating as a group of us caregivers here at UT to provide feedback. And in that year, I went back and my feedback was as a researcher, I'm very much confused. (laughs) There was so much language and so much, you know, jargon that I was unfamiliar with. And so my feedback was, I don't know how anyone else on this panel who are caregivers are understanding what any of this means, right? And while I know there's value for that, I'm well aware there's value for it. Coming from psychiatry and learning that you have to evolve with time and really bring in the participants and really bring in the family is important. When it makes sense to your participants and your family, like the language you're speaking, they're more likely to want to participate and partake in this because they're not confused or they're not asking themselves a million questions, wondering what it is that you were trying to share. So it was so refreshing when I participated this year and I saw so many more projects that involved caregivers. It was so great to see how research is evolving and including what it is exactly that caregivers are experiencing and how can they support the caregivers. Of course, the focus maintaining on dementia and a cure, right? We, we all definitely want that. But in the meantime, we definitely need to figure out how do we continue to support these caregivers who are caring for these individuals? And what can we do to set them up for success? Because if a caregiver is succeeding and a caregiver is doing well, then the individual with the diagnosis is definitely doing well. 
So well said, Cynthia. So well said. And, and you're not the only one who doesn't understand everything that's being presented at those conferences. I'm in the field as a researcher, and I don't understand half the things going on. So you're not alone. But I agree, you know, connecting with participants. I know Sarah certainly agrees with engaging in this community. But words matter, right? And the words we use to communicate with each other matter. And we cannot rest on medical and scientific jargon. We actually have to explain things so that people truly know what it is they're involved in, for good and bad. You know, the consent is an important process. And given that, and given all of your experience, you know, I want to end by asking you more of a direct question. If someone asked you right now if they should get involved in Alzheimer's-related research, what would you say to them? I would say definitely. I would say, of course, do your own research and find a study that works best for you. And not only are you a fit for the study, but is the study something that you find value in? And so, you know, if it's not a medication study, is there a psychosocial study out there where you could just do questionnaires? I, I cannot tell you how many monkey surveys or red cap surveys I get sent from the different caregiver groups that I'm in, just having questionnaires and just feedback and how impactful that will be. Make sure your voice is heard because if it's not your voice giving that feedback, it's someone else's voice, right? And no two voices have the exact same concerns or wants or needs and perspectives are extremely different. You know, we all have different perspectives coming from our cultural background, our educational background, our upbringing, even geographically where we live, right? So definitely just any little bit helps. I can tell you recruit for your studies quite well. I want to thank you, Ms. Cynthia Sierra, for being on this special podcast. And, and I'm excited to have you, Ms. Sarah Walter, on, on this. And, and as we go forward, I appreciate this perspective. And I think it's a needed one. And so, Sarah, thank you for, for pushing forward with this. And, and Cynthia, thank you for being our guest today. Thank you, Nate. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, or tell your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. If you enjoy our show and want to support our work, consider making a gift to the Dementia Matters Fund through the UW Initiative to End Alzheimer's. All donations go towards outreach and production. Donate at the link in the description. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes on Aging for Alzheimer's Disease Research. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Amy Lambright-Murphy and Kaylin Rauerdink and edited by Eli Gadbury. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.